Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Oh, yeah, the grass is green. But it's not what it seems. Cause when you think you want it, you just need it. I'm gonna live where the green grass grows. Watch my corn pop up in rows. The grass is always green around us. It's green and growing with Ashley Frasca. Plants, flowers, trees, and stuff. On 95.5 WSB. I'm still tickled by that. Plants, flowers, trees, and stuff. <laughs> I don't know what that means. It means a lot of things. We talk about a lot of things. And one of the, I mean, I love so many things about this show. I love the topics we talk about. I love interacting with all of you listening as you call. Um, but I love the freedom to just kind of cover whatever topic I want. I mean, I talked about the Communist Party of China uh, buying up farmland in Georgia. I talk about the Great Backyard Bird Count that's coming up in February. I mean, we talk about lawnmower maintenance and how to best store your mower and your gasoline equipment for the wintertime. Like, who knows? That that all falls under the category of stuff, I suppose, but I like it. Uh, 404 0750 is the number. So a friend of mine is calling in on the hotline. His ears were burning because I mentioned him at the top of the show. It is Norm Mitleider of The Art of Pruning. Hey, friend, good morning. Good morning, Ashley. So, yeah, at the top of the show, I was like, am I Japanese maple expert? The guy that I always bug when I get a good Japanese maple question. And you and I have been out in uh, gardens together, and you've been so gracious to let me follow you along at some clients' properties and kind of see you in action and see the work you do. And you love it. You're so passionate about it. That's why I'm still going. <laughs> Nothing outlasts the Energizer Bunny. Remember that? <laughs> yeah. So that is that is you, and you've been such a good resource for me. Uh, people love their Japanese maples. They're really popular in the landscape, a focal point, as they should be, given a lot of love and attention. Um, what best, Norm, I mean, I hate to be so vague here, but what best can you tell people about selecting and then caring for a Japanese maple? If they're going to spend the money and do it, they need to do it right. The selection process is very important because if you pick the wrong tree for the wrong spot, you tend to regret it years later. Uh, you should do your homework and find out, you know, what the growth characteristics of that tree are because some of them get pretty tall, some stay pretty short, some can grow wider than taller. So. It's very important to know what the uh, tree's going to look like in 10, 20 years so that you can plan the space accordingly. Yeah, and like the uh, different forms, right? Like like I've got an upright, like a blood good, and then the weeping yep. ones are really popular too, little dwarf or even full size, but weeping forms are pretty and pretty popular. Yes, those are the ones that get people into trouble because <laughs> in the nursery they're just a little stick and they put them next to a sidewalk or next to the house and then in five ten years they're spreading their wings so to speak and taking over things <laughs> yeah best laid plans of mice and men it does look like a cute little stick in the nursery but you've got to account for the full growth of these things and they do take full sun norm but there's a little bit of a catch there because too much 
son can be a bad thing sometimes. Yes, that is true. And they do get a little leaf scorched, but it would not be anything that I would be worried about. Sometimes I find that uh, the burgundy leaf ones are more susceptible to that rather than the green leaf varieties. Uh, I guess it's the chemistry in the tree. Uh, but you don't have to go out and give them more water because although proper watering is essential during the hot uh, summer months. Right. And then I've watched you at work, too, which I'm past the point of establishment with my with my maple tree. It's been there for a long, long time. But when you came over to my property and we had a really good conversation, I was just watching you prune mine and reduce the size a little bit, of it, thin it out a little bit, and kind of asking you as you were going along how you selectively you know, cut out certain branches and you really opened up the canopy a lot. Um, talk to people about, you know, it seems intimidating, but can they prune their own Japanese maple if given the right information? Well, that's the important thing, the right information, because <laughs> right. there certainly is a lot of information out there and not all of it is correct. Um, so uh, obviously an arborist is going to give you good information and the arborist websites should also give you good information. Um, but some of the links on when you Google something oh. isn't always the right information. Right. But the important thing whenever you're trimming a tree or a plant is always, you know, trim back to growth points and never leave a stub. Um, so you're either going back to a stem, a branch, or the trunk of the tree. Um, and that's the important thing. And, you know, you can always go in and clean out dead and criss crisscross branches. And you're trying to look at your tree and envision what it should look like down the road five or ten years. Uh, so branches that might eventually start rubbing on another branch, you can get them out early so that, you know, you don't have that issue later on. Well, the neat thing about pruning and watching you do it was you're absolutely right. When you cut back to a growth point, that is going to become a new branch, a new limb. So you can really eyeball it. And depending on what direction the bud's facing, you're like, yep, that's the direction that limb's going to grow. And as you mentioned, you know, five, six years down the road, we don't want it to grow into another limb or it's crossing it. If all of the buds are facing inward, then the tree is going to become really crowded with a lot of crossing branches in the canopy. Um, and you have mentioned there are two or three times throughout the year when it's okay to prune Japanese maples, but for different reasons and at different uh, degrees to prune, right? Like hard pruning a certain time of year, a little bit of maintenance pruning at another time. Um, yes. Uh, really, technically, you can prune a Japanese maple anytime. You're not going to kill the tree unless, of course, you get too ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> no uh, drinking and pruning at the same time. That's bad. That and no chainsaws. Yes, right. Uh, um, but... Yes, in, you know, early winter, you know, now up until, you know, the buds break, as you mentioned earlier in your show, you can do some really heavy pruning and you probably will get some bleeding if you do that now. Uh, but it's not, again, going to be detrimental to the tree. Uh, I usually don't try and do any pruning now. I wait until, you know, mid to late April okay. to start. And that's when I start, you know, doing my maintenance pruning. Now, are they fully leafed out by then, by April, so you can really see what you're cutting? 
Yes. Okay. And I always prefer trimming when the leaves are out. That way I have a better idea of what it's going to look like as far as the leaf canopy. Uh, naturally, in the wintertime, you don't have any leaves, so you can really see the structure of the tree. But I prefer having the leaves there so that I know how much spacing and airflow I'm creating by what I've pruned. And talk um, um, about maybe a time of year where you absolutely don't want to prune. It's just a bad idea. That, I would say, would be the summertime because this tree is kind of going semi-dormant to try and get through the hot weather. Mm -hmm. So July and August are two months that I would highly not recommend pruning a Japanese maple. And that's that's easy to remember for folks because think about it. If, if the tree is in a little bit of a protective mode and, you know, trying to get energy reserves to go into the fall and wintertime, well, we don't want to be out in July and August either. It's too hot. We have to protect ourselves from the heat, so the tree is doing much the same. Um, speaking with Norm Mitleider, who's a certified aesthetic pruner and my Japanese maple expert, uh, really quickly, Norm, I, I don't know if I've ever let you explain this in your own words, certified aesthetic pruner, that's not something you find every day. What does that mean exactly to have that qualification? Well, in a nutshell, it, it means a lot. It's just uh, similar to the uh, credentials that a certified arborist has, only it's regarding you know pruning. There are a lot in my business that are both a certified arborist and a certified aesthetic pruner, um, but it is somebody that has gone through training and has been tested and they know what they're doing. Yeah. Uh, I am fortunately the only one in the state of Georgia with that certification. That's um, amazing. But there are quite a few throughout the country um, and there are m more becoming certified aesthetic pruners every year. So that's a good thing. And like cultural techniques, like say in the Asian countries, when you think about bonsai and things like that, that's kind of when this can really come into play to make different tree formations that not just every old landscaper knows how to do. Oddly, you say that because that's kind of where the program got its start. It was uh, from Dennis Makashima out in California and he uh, was teaching classes, um, and it really caught on, and it's really spread across the country now. Yeah, see, that's so neat. And when you see stuff in bonsai form, it's just really, really fantastic. And the homeowner needs a little bit of knowledge to be able to maintain that shape and that form, or at least hire someone that knows how to. Um, Norm, if you don't mind, stick around. We've got to go to break. But when we come back, I want you to be able to talk about transplanting Japanese maples. That is sometimes the case. As you mentioned, people buy these cute little trees at the nursery, and then they become a little too oversized for the area that they're in, whether it's near a sidewalk or kind of a recess in the house, say in front of dining room windows or something when it was really dwarf and cute. And now it's just too big. And people are like, OK, well, I either got to cut it out or transplant it. So can I pick your brain on that when we come back? Sure. Love it. Okay, 718 here on a Saturday morning. It's green and growing on 95.5 WSB. So much more to talk about, too. So Norm's going to hang on, and you can call in as well. I'm here with you until 9 o'clock, guys. 404-872-0750. We'll be right back. The weather update for the weekend brought to you by Finley Roofing. Beautiful day today, just like yesterday, a high of around 60, maybe a little breezy at times. Rain moves in tomorrow afternoon, tomorrow evening. I have only 48, and it's going to be wet and rainy 
at least through Monday morning. The complete forecast comes up in less than 10 minutes. So I've got Norm Midlider with me this morning. We're talking about Japanese maples, and I can't wait to talk even more uh, when he joins me in the studio on Saturday, March 2nd. Uh, we're in person. Well, we're live right now, but we'll be in person with one another on uh, March 2nd. But So one of the big topics we wanted to tackle, Norm, was transplanting Japanese maples. Uh, my gosh, give me what you know. I mean, what size? How do I even go about doing it the right time of year? It seems intimidating. Yes, it, it can be. And naturally, it depends on the size of the tree. Uh, if you have a larger tree, I would definitely search out, you know, a good landscape company because um, you don't want to break your back trying to properly uh, dig up and move the Japanese maple. Um, so definitely go down that road if it's necessary. But a lot of times uh, you can move one without too much trouble. And uh, the important thing to remember is that you do not want to transplant a Japanese maple once it starts waking up. And that's usually, you know, Valentine's Day. So February 14th is your cutoff for wanting to move a Japanese maple um, and do not move it from that point until the end of March. Yeah, um, that's going to be so disruptive to it just trying to do its thing. Yes. But, and similar to what you had mentioned earlier about pruning, um, that is the one time that you do not want to move a Japanese maple. It's the worst time because it can lead to it potentially dying uh, if you don't take the proper care when you do move it at that time. So you want to stay clear of that. But you want to, uh, if the tree isn't, you know, maybe a, a caliper or two in diameter, um, you can move, usually move it um, and just dig out about 18 inches, maybe to uh, get somewhat of a good root ball. You're talking you horizontally the, from side to side. Yes. Mm-hmm. And a lot of you want to obviously have the hole prepped before you dig up the existing tree uh, so that it's ready to go in the new hole. Uh, and then obviously try and plant it a little bit high. I always liked having it a little higher, one or two inches maybe sometimes six inches, depending on how the water drains in that area. Uh, So that's important. Uh, And then after you plant it, I would highly recommend adding some mulch around it because the mulch is going to do several things. It's going to help keep the temperature of the soil nice. Uh, In the wintertime, it's going to keep it a little warmer. And in the summertime, it's going to keep it a little cooler. Also, the mulch is going to help retain some of the moisture in the, the root ball area uh, so it's not you know, evaporating out with direct sun exposure. And then the other benefit is you may notice that over time, sometimes your roots start being exposed. Mm-hmm. You know that it wasn't that way when you planted it, right. but what happens is when it rains, that those little rain pellets are eroding away that dirt over time. So that mulch will prevent that from happening. But that's kind of normal behavior. It's okay if we start to see some of the roots above ground. That yes, doesn't mean it, that we bury them in dirt, <laughs> right? It's not detrimental to the tree, yeah. but 
you know, it is, you know, helpful to have that I've got so many more questions, so I can't wait for you to be in studio. And we'll take calls, too. We'll have time to take calls from people about their Japanese maples. And hopefully they'll all get those questions in for you when you're here in person. But thank you for taking the time this morning and telling us what the right thing is and what the wrong thing is. And we'll catch up with you real soon. All right. March will be here before we know it. I know. Can you believe it? Well, have a good weekend, Norm. Hello to everybody, okay? Okay. You too as well, Great conversation. I love that. All right. When we come back, more of your calls and organic gardening. 404-872-0750. It's green and growing with Ashley Frasca. Plants, flowers, trees, and stuff. On 95.5 WSB. So if we're doing our prognosticating with uh, the results of what a groundhog sees or doesn't see or what food he comes out of his little house to eat or not, I guess we're going to have an early spring, which is going to be really cool. And with this warm weather, I can't help but think... Some things are already going to start want, wanting to butt out, maybe. Um, a friend of mine, Chuck, actually just sent me a picture this morning. said, back in January, this forsythia wasn't doing anything and just looked at it two days ago. And wow, the, the forsythia, of course, is bare. It doesn't have any leaves on it. But there's a couple of little yellow flowers right at the tip of one of the branches. So this is really the time when we're kind of shaking in our boots a little bit with the cold weather. When springtime comes and all of these beautiful cherry trees and fruit trees and all of those things, they've set, they've set the buds. They've already got the buds for those flowers to open, which are then going to produce fruit. Uh, when those get bit by a freeze, say in March, that's really the more devastating freeze for some of the ornamentals and also some of the edible um, orchards and things like that. So we really want to hold our breath and be careful if we're going to eke into this warm weather we want to stay warm we don't want to have a couple of freezing days in march so fingers crossed um you can read about this funny weather pattern for sure christina edwards our meteorologist writes a lot of great weather blogs if you're kind of a weather geek and you really want to know more about the patterns that we're seeing this time of year uh, wsbradio.com weather you can see some of her blogs and i think she's even got some notes up there about the groundhog yesterday and the results there at it was Yellow River Game Ranch. I'm not sure what the new name is, but that's where our little Beauregard Lee lives. So that's really fun. Um, talking it with Norm Mitleider in the last half hour, such a good conversation, Japanese maples. And there's really a lot of time that we could spend on Japanese maples for sure. So many of you have great calls and questions. And, you know, they're not real susceptible to disease or anything. But a lot of times you'll see some funny things that you ask me about. And I'm like, hmm, ah, that's new. Haven't seen that. So I'll always send Norm a picture and then get you an answer. But he did mention if you were planning to transplant one or, or any tree, really, that you're just not sure of how to do it, but it's very special or very expensive and you want to make sure it's done right, he said, find a landscaper, you know, who you trust to do that kind of thing. And you wonder, well, how do I do that? I mean, just word of mouth. I mean, you don't want to get the mow and blow guy to do it. You definitely have skill set is a little more than that. So a good way to do it is visiting the uh, Ur Urban Ag Council of Georgia website. And you go to urbanagcouncil.com, urbanagagcouncil.com. And right at the top is Find an Industry Pro. And those are folks that are certified here in the state of Georgia to be landscape professionals. 
and you can type in your zip code and away you go. You can get at least a couple of quotes, have a couple of people come out and look at it. But um, the Georgia Urban Ag Council and Site One were the sponsors and the hosts of this week's Landscape Pro University and Expo that I was so fortunate to attend. So grateful to Mary Kay Woodworth for letting me pop in there at the Cobb Galleria and really sit through a lot of cool classes. And these landscapers are sitting through them like it's class. You know, I mean, they're getting their certified or their continuing education credits. And I was just there being nosy and taking notes and trying to learn some of the the latest news in the business. So that's really fun. And a lot of things like that, the general public is welcome at. You know, if you and your spouse, maybe you're thinking about starting a business or something, or you're just a brand new homeowner to Georgia and you have no idea what things are down here, what diseases and pest pressures we have, or trying to really start to identify some of the different landscaping around you. There's all these things that you're welcome to go to, too. Sometimes there's a registration fee for that if it covers lunch and all of that. And it's kind of an all-day-long conference. But the trade shows cool are just cool. They're really neat to, to go into the trade show and talk to some of those businesses. And whether they're, you know, NG Turf selling sod or some of the equipment manufacturers, just really neat things you can learn in talking with those people at their booths. But all of that stuff is on my website. I'm just so encouraged all of the time to keep up to date through Facebook or however of these organizations, groups, master gardener groups, county extension offices in Georgia, whenever they offer classes and seminars and things like that. So visit my website, wsbradio.com slash green and growing and scroll down to events. And there I have a very extensive list of a lot of cool things going on around Georgia for February and March. Can't do it too far out, but February and March is within our purview now. So, um, this Saturday, as a matter of fact, today and tomorrow, early spring planting, a garden series at Brookdale, a journeyman farmer certificate program. If you even knew that was a thing, that is on Monday from six to eight for those folks that want to go through that. Next Saturday, right after the show, I'm going to head to the Marietta Square for Tree Palooza with the Marietta Tree Keepers. This will be the third year I've joined them in the Marietta Square during the farmer's market. And they have a booth and they're giving out uh, saplings. And it's just really cool to talk to families and people and educate them if we give them a new little baby tree, where to put it, how to care for it, and all that kind of thing. And the North Georgia Camellia Society reached out to me and they were like, we'd love to have you at the anniversary show. And that is next Saturday and Sunday. And unfortunately, I can't make it. But that uh, is at the Atlanta Botanical Gardens, I believe. And that is fun. These people grow camellias and they are gorgeous and prize-winning, really showstoppers. So they have judges come in and judge guard, or, uh, camellias from the different classes, different varieties and things, and they win prizes and things like that. So that's really cool. If you like camellias, that's fun. You'll learn a lot and talk to a lot of cool people. Uh, Greater Greenville Master Gardener Symposium, for those of you near South, near South Carolina, their annual symposium is coming up next weekend as well. So that's going to be a day of education and a day of fun. And just look at the list. It's pretty extensive, a lot of good things going on. Um, So speaking of gardening, and I I teased ahead to this, organic gardening, I thought it was a good topic as I was speaking out loud to myself in a show early in January. I thought, yeah, that's a question I get a lot, and I didn't really know how to properly answer it. So if you've ever gone to UGA Extension's website and read a publication on just about anything, I can guarantee you uh, horticulturalist Bob Westerfield has written a publication for just about everything, and his publications are very prolific through UGA Extension. If you and I as homeowners want to know anything about anything, um, and I actually finally got to meet him when I was taking my Master Gardener classes back last February and March, and he did a great talk on vegetable gardening. That was his class, that his planned topic for that particular weekend, and uh, really learned a lot from him. 
I was glad to exchange contact information with him. And so I interviewed him a few months back. We talked about a lot of different things, garden myths, and maybe you've heard some of those those talks on previous shows. But when it comes to organic, you know, what does that mean? And, and how do we protect ourselves from not being uh, taken advantage of by someone who's not really following some stringent guidelines? So take a listen to this. Bob seems to be, you know, pretty trendy. Folks are pretty proud of becoming organic farmers. You know, they want to grow everything That's organic. Right. Organic insecticides, whether they're more effective, less effective, or just the same as something synthetic. And also, when we get something in the grocery store, we grow something certified organic. Does that mean that no chemicals were used at all? Uh, great question. In fact, it's good timing. Um, so first of all, yeah, organic farmers are limited in what they can use. They can, let me say this again, they can use chemicals. They have to be approved organic chemicals. Um, most of them are naturally derived. Not all of them, but most of them are. A good example is they may use something called um, pyrethrin. Pyrethrin uh-huh. is a naturally occurring insecticide that actually comes out of chrysanthemum. We think of mums, chrysanthemum blooms. Another is neem oil, which is an extract from the roots of the neem oil tree. So there's a lot of different products out there they're using that have got some beneficial either insecticidal control, maybe it's a fungicide control. So they do have products they can use. It's a very restricted list that they have to follow. It's all USDA regulated and I will say highly enforced. So if you buy a product that is certified organic, they have gone through a rigid inspection where in, the inspectors come out, they inspect the farm, they pay a lot of money to be inspected. They have a very limited base of what they can do. They have to use all organic fertilizers. That means, you know, no 10-10-10, miracle Grow, anything like that. It all has to be naturally derived. Anyone can grow and call their product organic and sell it if they're making less than $5,000 is one thing. You can call natural grown or Cobb County grown. There's no rules or roots or teeth into that. But if you say certified organic and you're making over $5,000, you better be on the list of being certified because you're going to get inspected and it's heavy fines when you're in violation. So I've been working on an inspector's uh, training where you can actually go out to organic farms inspect. And and it's really uh, eye-opening to see how many hoops and hurdles they have to jump through in order to get their produce to market. So Yeah, organics typically cost more because I can tell you right now, they cost a lot more to produce. And the limited chemicals that they can use, like we talked about the insecticides, Mm -hmm. or you're utilizing things like fish oil or chicken feather meal as fertilizers, they're two to three times more expensive than what, say, you and I could go to, you know, Home Depot, Lowe's, Walmart, wherever, and just buy a bag of fertilizer. And I think people need to realize that if they're buying something organic, first of all, it has to have that stamp on there. It's going to say USDA organic certified. And that means they went through all the hoops and ladders. If someone's got a stand up there and just says organic on top, and then when you go to look at the products, you don't see labeling and so forth, you know, they could be in violation. So it's it's pretty interesting. And what about OMRI certified? You see that OMRI certified. So that's the Organic Materials Institute or whatever, and they have a tremendous long list of what you can use and you can't use. Okay. It's not inclusive because there's there's stuff being asked about and, and recertified and changed, but it's a, it's a very thick manual of products. And it's not just things like, um, you know, we talked about some of the neem oils and the pyrethrins. It's certain soil mixes. And so it actually lists um, what the product is and who's the producer. Let's just say somebody's called it nature's helper soil or something like that. If it's an approved organic product that an organic farm could use, it should be on that OMRI list. So they, they have to go through there and make sure it's on that list and so forth. It means that a 
USDA certified team has gone to that product. They've looked at it. They've evaluated it. They look at not only what the, like the natural things are, but if there's any what we call inert ingredients, which are like filler ingredients. Okay. And then it gets determined through a board if it can be used or not. So really good information, whether you're growing a garden or whether you're shopping other people's products, say at farmer's markets or whatever, if it's large-scale organic, that's really something to pay attention to. So good information from Bob Westerfield there. Thank you so much. Uh, 404-872-0750. I have time really quickly to talk to Scott in Kennesaw. Hey, good morning, Scott. Good morning. How are you? I'm great. What's going on? Well, I've been working in the yard, and I got all the poana coming up. I need to find out uh, the best way to get rid of it. Uh, I know the pre-emerger should be put down here in the next couple of weeks, but uh, how do I get rid of the stuff that's already there? Right. That's really a tricky thing, and you're absolutely right in saying that, okay, yep, pre-emergent is going to stop a lot of it. So I will remind everybody, and we're coming up on in the next Gosh, there's probably a four-week window maybe that we really want to get that pre-emergent application in and down so that we can fight it. And the pre-emergent application, not to, I'm not lecturing you, Scott, but just letting folks know, with the pre-emergent application, we're getting ahead of the next season's weeds to really keep them in check. But as you're dealing with the POA annua now, it's tough, but you're able to at least use some post-emergent sprays. Um, there are some labeled for annual bluegrass for POA annua, so you really got to look kind of carefully at the label in the big box store, um, being able to find the right chemical, which is escaping my mind right now, the, the right active ingredient. If you don't mind, give me a minute because I'm up against the clock here. Scott, keep listening. And when we come back, I'll actually give you some products. I don't know why, probably because I haven't finished the first cup of coffee that I brewed at 530 this morning. The, <laughs> the active ingredient and the chemical that you need is not coming to my mind. So hang in. And I know a lot of you want that answer too. So we'll be right back. It's Green and Growing on WSB. I would say, you know how it feels when you're looking at the clock and you're up against a break and then a word's not coming to your mind and you just feel like an idiot? Well, that just happened for those of you. Scott had a great question about applying uh, herbicide to poa annua, right? Annual bluegrass and there's perennial types and it's crazy. And the best time to do a pre-emergence herbicide, he referenced that. Like he's like, I know I got to do that to stay ahead of it. And anytime it drops seed, when we're doing pre-emergence herbicide, that's going to work in the soil. Once those seeds start to germinate, it's going to go, uh-uh, knock them back at the knees. And you'll still have some that make it, but a lot less. The actual right timing for the pre-emergence herbicide, though, since this is thought of as like a winter annual, we got to get it out like September. So that's the best time because then now you're seeing it and it's like too late. So for for most effective control over this annual bluegrass poa annua, even as far back as August, you just got to get that pre-emergence in the ground before it starts to seed. So August to mid-September, Scott, is the right timing on the pre-emergence for that. It's not going to do a lot of good now because that's going to die out in the summertime. So if you put the pre-emergence down for it now, it won't be as effective. It'll be great for other things, for summer weeds, but not poa annua. Um, the chemical I was trying to think of was imazequin. That is the active ingredient. And the product name is Image, which is you know, a, a knockoff of imazequin, easy to remember, image for nutgrass. Um, so you can certainly use that to control it. But I think fescue, you cannot use uh, image in fescue because it can't tell the difference between the fescue and the annual bluegrass. So, but if you have any other turf type, image is going to be a good one too. Um, deep and infrequent irrigation. Think about this when we're actually doing good cultural practices for the turf, for the turf irrigating for longer periods of time so that water soaks into the soil and not doing it at, as often, that encourages grass 
roots to establish and grow a little bit deeper, that may improve the ability of that grass to really strengthen and kind of outcompete the bluegrass a little bit. So that's a good cultural practice you can keep in mind. And proper mowing height and frequency and how you maintain all of that is going to keep, you know, the annual bluegrass, the poa annual is in with your turf. So mowing it along with your turf, keeping it from going to seed uh, when it really wants to and, and spread all the seeds and stuff like that is good cultural practices as well. If you're overrun with it, I would probably say bag your grass clippings and, and carry them away to get seed heads out of there rather than just, you know, grass cycling and letting the, the clippings fall back into the lawn. But um, amazequin is one that's an active ingredient. And also another one, I mean, of course you can use Roundup, but you got to be really careful because it's going to kill anything it comes in contact with. And atrazine. Atrazine is another one that starts with an A, A-T-R-A-Z-I-N-E. Yeah, just like it sounds, atrazine. So there's some good ideas of how to get after annual bluegrass, poa annua. Again, the best time to really try to get ahead of it is in the fall, August, September, when summer's winding down so that any seeds that germinate in the cooler weather are knocked back by that pre-emergence herbicide. Thank you for that. Sorry, that was a really roundabout long way of answering your question, but very good question. I know it's frustrating to see it now. Even if there's larger patches that you can actually concentrate on all at once, uh, getting down on your hands and knees and kind of getting a little hand trowel and just trying to dig up what you can. Again, just keeping that seed from dropping the soil and spreading is going to be helpful as well. And, you know, I saw my neighbor out and he's got a dormant Bermuda lawn. So it's beautiful when it's greened up, but right now it's brown. And it's so good for him to be out there on these days when it's 60 degrees and it's really nice because he's getting ahead of some of the weeds that he sees now. And they're so obvious and dormant turf because they're bright green. So the more you can kind of get out there and do when the weather's nice and remove by hand, I know it feels like it's a futile effort, but it's really not. So that's a good idea as well. Uh, When we come back, I want to talk about starting seed indoors and a few ideas and maybe tips and tricks from Joe Lample, our friend Joe Gardner. And the top three things to do in the landscape this weekend. I'm going to do that at a little bit different time right after we come back from the news at 8 o'clock because I have some experts from Rivermont Golf Club in Johns Creek to talk to us a little bit about ornamental grasses because that's one of the things in my top three. So I hope you'll stay tuned. Glad you're here on a Saturday morning. Another hour to go of green and growing right here on 95.5 WSB. And go ahead and jump over on Facebook. I know you're up checking it anyways, looking at your notifications, who did what overnight. Like or follow the page, green and growing WSB.